I did a uh, funeral of a woman in our church who was about 100 years old. I can't remember exactly if she was 99 or 100. Uh, many uh, of us uh, knew her, and she was known, actually, as someone who had just this steadfast, bedrock faith in the Lord. However, something interesting happened uh, near the last month of her life. As I would go and visit her, she had a lot of fear. And she had a lot of doubt uh, about her standing before God and her, her life in Christ. And so, you know, I just remember kind of being caught off guard by this because this is uh, someone who had known to have this kind of stead, steadfast faith. And we started working through some of the promises of Scripture together and, and going through uh, those things. But it, it kind of got me to realize, like, who of us, heaven at one time, had those kind of fears and doubts, right? Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? How can I really know that my standing in Christ is sure. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that hopefully we can leave here this morning. It's passages that I would walk through with this woman with a little bit more confidence if we truly are in Christ about that standing. Now, just as a reminder, if you haven't been with us, we are in a series and we're just looking at for the rest of this whole spring, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And we call this series in Christ uh, because really what we're learning throughout this series are some of the amazing things that happens once we are placed in in a relationship with Christ, especially things about our identity, right? We've been given a new identity in Christ, and uh, as Paul does in most of his letters, he spends the first half of those letters explaining this new identity to the believers, then he gets to the stuff we immediately rush to, which is sort of like the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. Now, you've heard the saying, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And there's a big debate about that, right? Well, in this case, it really does matter what comes first. And what comes first for us is we must know who we are in Christ first. We must know our identity first before we ever get to the way we live. And that's why we've been saying week after week, again, if you're following on your notes, being convinced of who we are in Christ changes the way we live. Not the other way around. Changing the way we live won't convince us of who we are in Christ. We first must know who we are. And that's, again, why for the last four weeks, going all the way through the end of May, we are slowly working our way through Ephesians 1 through 3, looking at our new identity. So far, all we've been looking at is the longest recorded sentence in Greek literature, which started in Ephesians 1, verse 3, and it goes all the way till verse 14, which is actually, we're looking at verses 13 and 14. So we come to this sentence that Paul has just kind of spewed out in praise and gratitude for all the amazing things that we've been given in Christ. We've learned, among other things, that if you are in Christ, truly in Christ, God has made you a saint When he sees you, he sees you as holy and blameless. We've seen that if you are in Christ, you were chosen by God. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted into his family. And then last week we saw that if you are in Christ, you have been redeemed from the penalty of sin. Jesus has set you free from sin. And this morning we get to the end of this great sentence and praise, and we got another whammy. We got another amazing uh, inventory, another rich blessing that we have if we are truly in Christ. And I hope when we learn about this truth, it can give you great assurance in your standing before God. If you struggle with that lie, can I lose my standing in Christ? So why don't you take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Again, we're only going to be looking at two verses this morning, verses 13 and 14, but I'm actually going to have us start a little earlier in verses 11 and 12, and I just want to do that to kind of set the context. Jeff spoke on these verses several weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, but it kind of sets up uh, the verses we're going to be looking at in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So I'm starting in Ephesians 1, verse 11, which says, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, I'm not going to talk so much about the choosing part or the predestined part. We've sort of talked about those things. What I want you to pay attention to is that last part of verse 12 where Paul says, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Now just pause here for a minute here. Who might Paul be speaking about right now? Who is Paul referring to? Any guesses? He's talking about the Jews, right? Almost certainly, Paul is speaking about the Jewish people. You see, as a Jew himself, Paul was saying that God's plan in bringing the gospel was that it would be revealed first to the Jews. Now, this can be confirmed simply by looking at Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself said, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. It can be confirmed by looking at the first chapters of Acts, right? You see that almost all of the early believers were Jews. In fact, most people don't know this, but there was not not even such thing as a Christian until much later on. Most people just saw this Jesus movement as something that was taking place within the Jewish faith. And yet... We know that God's plan was so much bigger, right? His gospel was for, we say it this way, Jew and Gentile. What is a Gentile? Anybody who's not Jewish. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this Jew-Gentile relationship in the weeks to come. If you've ever read Ephesians, you know it's a huge, huge part of this letter. But all I wanted to say, that just sets up verse 13, which starts this way. And you also were included in Christ. Who's he talking about in the you also? Gentiles. Specifically here, the Gentiles who lived in Ephesus, the Ephesian Gentiles. So listen, this good news, this gospel, this amazing reality that we can be included in Christ is for all people. It's for all people. Romans chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 says it this way. There is no difference in Christ between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I'm just going to say straight up, I don't think we fully appreciate how radical this is for us today. I'm going to guess almost all of us in this room are Gentiles. For us to be included To be included in Christ is just an amazingly radical thing that we need to celebrate more often together. And like I said, we're going to get a chance to do that more in the later chapters of Ephesians. But the question becomes, how do we, Jew or Gentile, become included in Christ? As Gentiles, do we first have to become Jews? Do we have to follow Jewish laws? Do we have to follow Jewish customs in order to become included in Christ? No, that's not what Paul says. Let's read what Paul says in verse 13 out loud together there. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Did you see the three things that it takes to be included in Christ? Three things. Number one, let's go through these. This is important. 
Number one, being included in Christ first requires hearing the gospel. This is sort of like a duh, right? You got to hear about it. You got to hear about Jesus. You got to hear about Christ. What's the gospel? In its most simple form, 1 Corinthians 15.1, right? The most simple form, the gospel is the good news. Literally, that's what gospel means, the good news about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We will have the chance later this week to celebrate the gospel together on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The, the, the point is, though, people have to hear that. They have to hear about it. Again, Romans 10 is helpful. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes from what? Hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. One cannot be saved. One cannot be included in Christ unless they first hear the message about Christ. This is why Paul dedicated his entire life to being a preacher a herald of this gospel message to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, quick question. This doesn't have anything really to do with the topic this morning, but how do people hear the gospel today? How do people hear the gospel today? Well, again, Romans 10, Paul says, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Who preaches the gospel? Is that just the job of pastors and missionaries? No, Jesus sends all of his followers, his disciples, to go into the world, right? Go into your homes, go into your neighborhoods, go into your workplaces and preach the gospel anywhere God has sent you. Because listen, for anyone to be included in Christ, they must first hear about Christ. And the only way they're going to hear about Christ is if we, his followers, speak it. If we tell people about him. But hearing the gospel is insufficient, isn't it? The second step of being included in Christ, if you're following, is that it requires believing the truth about Christ. you got to believe. You can't just hear it. You have to believe it. Now, today we hear things all the time like, it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is how you live. It doesn't matter if you're in this faith or that faith or this philosophy or, or that religion. All that matters in the end is if you were a good person. Now, that is completely opposed to what Paul says right here. What he says is the truth about Christ is important. Believing the truth about Christ is important. Now, we talk a lot about what belief, what believing is uh, in this church. For the writers of Scripture, including Paul, belief. I mean, it's just such a word we throw out there. It's not just an intellectual assent to some proposition, right? Like, it doesn't just mean like, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's not belief. Even the demons believe that, James tells us. So what is belief? And we've gone through this together as a church. We're learning about this. this is part of what we mean when we're like declaring war on shallow Christianity, right? If you're following there, belief is trusting Jesus enough to fully follow him as Lord. That's belief. Belief is going all in. Going all in with Jesus. Belief is believing that God's way of life really is the best way of life, and I am going to pursue that life with everything I am and everything that I have. That's belief. 
That's belief. This is why when we get to chapter 4 this fall, after spending three chapters explaining our new identity in Christ, Paul starts the whole transition into the second half of this book, the whole part about like how to live this out now with these words I printed on your notes there. Ephesians 4.1. Can you read them out loud with me? He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's belief. That's belief. Living out, living out the calling, living out your new identity in Jesus Christ. That's when you believe something. Belief always leads to action. Listen, not because of some effort where you're trying to earn God's approval and love. It's out of a sense of this is who I am. This is who God has made me. This is who I want to be. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. This is what I want to do. He's called me to live this kind of life. And because I believe him, I'm going to do it. So, you got to hear it. you got to believe it. And then the third thing that is involved in being included in Christ, if you're following, is that it results in being sealed with the Holy Spirit. We don't always talk about this third one. Some of your translations might say marked in the Spirit, but I think the better word, quite honestly, is sealed. That's why I chose the ESV version there. What's a seal? You guys know, a lot of people know this, right? Technically, a seal in these times was a uniquely designed stone ring or necklace that was used to mark clay or wax, right? Uh, I have a couple seal examples up here, I think, on the screen. There's, a, there's an example. Here's one uh, of one where they actually imprinted the seal on something. So if I were a king, and I like to dream sometimes, right? If I were a king and I lived 2,000 years ago, I would wear a ring much like that, or I'd wear it around my neck or something. And if I wanted to send you a letter, or if I wanted to make a decree for all of my people, I would make the decree, I'd write it out, and then I would seal that with whatever my insignia was. And my ring, my insignia would be very, very impossible almost to counterfeit because when you received this letter, when you received the decree from King Steve I, you would want to make sure it was legitimately from him, right? So you would examine the seal. You would know whether this letter, whether whether this decree was really authentic or not, and you could have assurance when you saw the seal that this really did come from the king. Seals were also used for religious purposes. You know, the Jews linked the word with the covenant of circumcision, right? They believed that a person was sealed as a member of God's chosen people in this ritual of circumcision. It was God's insignia on them. Heathen religions also sealed their devotees. They would often put a tattoo on on themselves in order to say, I belong to this particular cult or this particular religion. Now, how do we know we're Christians? How do we know we belong to the king? Of all kings. How do we know that we've been included in Christ? How do I know that all these feelings I have, these beliefs I have, what's going on in my life, how do I know that's from God? How do I know it's authentic? Well, the answer is because we are sealed at the very moment of our belief by his very own spirit. For the Christian, God's insignia on us is his very own spirit. That's crazy. 
What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you two things at least that means. It means a couple important things. First, being sealed means, number one, if you're following, I belong to God. I should have said I belong to God now probably. I belong to God. In regard to sealing in the ancient world, a seal was something that signified ownership, right? I'm the one who owned that letter I'm sending to you. Or sometimes they would seal a lot of their possessions so people would know this belongs to me. And we're told here that's exactly what God has done. He has sealed us and his seal is the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, he is calling us his own. In fact, in verse 14, which we're going to unpack in a little bit, but here, just I'll do a little sneak peek here. Notice what we're called there. We're called God's possession. You see that? Again, we can't understand the huge significance of this unless you're really like an Old Testament scholar here. If you're an Old Testament scholar, you know that only ever is Israel called God's possession. Nobody else is called God's possession, and yet we get to the New Testament, and we're told here that believers who are in Christ are God's possession. We are included in Christ. What does it mean to be God's possession? Uh, I sometimes have thought of this in a negative way, like God saying, I own you now. Don't expect to have any freedom now in your life. I don't think that's how we should really uh, view this. I think the older translations have it better when they said, you are God's portion. You are God's portion. You know what a portion is? A portion in these days was a person's wealth. So if you grew up in a family, depending on what position you were on that family, let's say you were the oldest child, you would wait, you know, when your father passed away, you would receive your portion of the family's wealth. What your portion was, quite honestly, determined your status in life. It determined how your life was going to go, the kind of influence you would have. It would determine where you're going, what you would be where you would get to in this world. Here, in the inspired word of God, we are told that when we are in Christ, God looks at you and says, you're my portion. You are my wealth. You're my wealth. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, this says the king of the universe looks at you and his heart and his eyes well up and he says, when I look at you, I feel wealthy. When I look at you, I feel like you are my special treasure. I feel like you are more valuable than anything else I have or I own. I'm committed to you. I'm committed with the whole of my being to treasuring and cherishing you. If you're following on your notes, being sealed in Christ means we are God's treasured possession. How's that for a new identity, amen? We are God's treasured possession. Now, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you're like me. I still have a hard time believing that. I, I don't walk around every day thinking, I am God's treasured possession. If I did, I think I would view life a whole lot differently. I don't know about you. You see, because I still see areas in my life where I'm like, oh, God can't be pleased with that. Does that cause me to lose my standing in Christ? Does that take the seal off of my life? Friends, the whole point of doing this series together is for us to start getting it into our heads and getting it into our hearts that our status in Christ cannot change once we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your status in God's eye 
cannot and will not change. Now listen, we can certainly grieve the Holy Spirit, can't we? Scripture talks about that. I can grieve the Spirit. When I sin, I grieve the Spirit. I can lose my fellowship with God, which is restored when I confess and I I repent. But listen, I, you, if you're in Christ, can never ever lose your position, your identity, your status in him. So when I grieve the Lord, and I do often, he still sees me as his treasured possession. If you are a parent, I think you can understand this, at least to a degree. There are days, I'm sure many of you have experienced this, where you just can't wait to get to the end of the day, right? It's like a terrible, horrible, bad day. Everything is going wrong, you're, you're yelling, you're just finding yourself like, I just need to get to the end of the day, go to bed. And the kids get to bed, and uh, the, then I, this is, for me at least, I go into their room after they're long asleep, and I turn certain things off or whatever, and I look at them, and no matter how bad of a day it is, I look at my kids, and you know what I think? You are my treasured possession. No matter how bad of a day it was, no matter how bad of a week it is, no matter what they do, they will always be my treasured possession. No matter how bad of a day you have in Christ, you will always be God's treasured possession if you are in him. The second thing I just want to quickly mention here is that being sealed means that I am protected. The seal not only assures us that we are his, it assures us of his protection, right? Nobody messed with the king's seal. You don't mess with that or you're in big time trouble. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, my sheep, those who are truly in Christ, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Can anything snatch us when we are sealed in Christ out of the Father's hand? We are protected. So listen, if you are truly in Christ, you are not only his treasured possession, but he treasures you so much he will never let you go. So when that lie comes that I can lose my standing in Christ. The one who has heard the word, the one who has believed the word, has been sealed, has been sealed in the Holy Spirit, sealed in Christ. That's some good news, isn't it? What an identity. Now, of course, it begs the question, kind of the elephant in the room here, how can we be sure we're sealed? How can I know that I know that I know? That's a good question. In fact, Paul tells us we should ask that question. In 2 Corinthians, I believe, 13, verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Like, if you're in Christ, Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. What's the test? What's the test to know that I'm truly sealed in Christ? Now, that's a hugely loaded question, isn't it? So I'm going to answer it in one sentence. Seriously, I'm going to summarize much of the entire New Testament in one sentence. How do I know I'm sealed, if you're following? Because being sealed produces internal and external changes in us. 
you know you're sealed because the Spirit produces internal and external changes in us. How can I know that I know that I know? How can I have assurance of my position in Christ, of my salvation? Well, the first way is this internal thing is going to happen, right? This is honestly what we've been talking about the last several weeks in this series. When it comes to identity, when we are really placed in Christ, we will have this inner assurance of God's presence, of God's power, of God's smile on our lives. If you're following on your notes there, the Holy Spirit works in us to sense God's presence. That's one of his jobs. There will be, listen, the best way I can just say it, there will be a palpable sense of God is with me. God is with me, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death sometimes. God is with me. Remember two weeks ago, we spent a lot of time on this in Romans 8, when it says that when God sends his spirit or the seal into a believer's life, it causes us to cry what? Abba, Father. It causes us to know God inwardly in that kind of a relationship, right? A a relationship, not a supervisor or a boss, but in a relationship. God wants a relationship with us. That's the Holy Spirit's job to help us to say, Abba, Father. And then in verse 16 of Romans 8, Paul goes on to say, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Have you ever experienced that? The Spirit testifying in your spirit, knowing, just having a sense of overwhelming awe, gratitude, I am his. God is with me. I am his child. The, the one time in my life, not the one time, I'm sorry, the time when it was most palpable for me is how I should say that, is when I was baptized. I share this in the first step class, but my dad was a pastor, and so I got to be baptized by my dad. And I'll, I'll never forget my earthly father dunking me and pulling me back up, and he embraces me in this huge bear hug, right, and he's whispering into my ear, I'm so proud of you right now. And seriously, even at the age of eight, when I got baptized or seven, there was this palpable sense of my heavenly father saying the same thing. I experienced God's inner working of the spirit. What's more, when we have this inner working of God's presence, there'll be other things that take place, right? We'll, be rem- we'll have remorse over sin. You can't, if you're in the spirit, you can't sin and enjoy it. At some point, your conscience, this conscience the Spirit has given you, is going to convict you. That's one of the gifts of the Spirit. There's going to be manifestations of gifts, right? Each believer has been given a spiritual gift. It will increase your desire to know God, to pray, to read scriptures, to meditate scriptures. There'll just be this inner working of growth in your life to know Christ and Him crucified. I used to read the Bible every day out of a sense of duty and obligation. I'll just be honest. I wanted to check it off my list. Now, because of the inner working of the Spirit, it isn't because of me. It's because of the inner working of the Spirit. If I go a day without being in God's Word, I feel malnourished. I feel like my day isn't right. Something's wrong. I wish I could say the same thing about fasting. I'm still working on that one there, right? Now listen, this does not mean, I hope you're not sitting here going, Oh, I'm in a season of darkness right now. I'm not sensing. It doesn't mean we won't go through seasons of darkness. I've gone through some. It doesn't mean we won't go through seasons of doubt. But all we're saying is in the big picture of our lives, will there be experiences 
of the presence of God, will there be a growing desire to know him more and to be known by him more? Is there a growing sense of that, friends? Is there a desire to know him more intimately? That's the first evidence of knowing whether you've been sealed. Second evidence, uh, if you're following on your notes there, is the Holy Spirit works in us to shape our character. To shape our character. What is a Christian? Someone who is becoming like Christ. How do we do that? Willpower? That doesn't work. We do that because that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit yearns for us in our lives to grow, to become, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Friends, one of the most important things, if you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, one of the most important ways you can know that you know that you know, that you're not just imagining this, is that you will see progress in your character. I'm not talking about overnight stuff. We want this to happen all immediately. I'm talking about like over time, slowly, God will begin to transform things in your life. Life will begin to change. You really will become less selfish. You'll experience more joy. You'll find it more easy to forgive. You'll find it easier to ask for forgiveness. You'll be more patient with people. You will love people that you couldn't love before. You will see visible changes in your actions. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit is working in us to become more like Jesus. As he often did, John was pretty blunt about this stuff. You read 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, he gets pretty blunt. He says this in 1st John 3, 6. No one who lives in him, no one who's in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now I think we're all going, "Uh uh-oh, I still sin. What does that mean? It means habitually. Over and over again, you can't keep sinning the same sin over and over again without feeling any sort of remorse, without any desire to change. No one who's really in Christ can do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And the Holy Spirit is always working to shape and transform us more into Jesus. Again, this doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. I can look at areas in my life, I think you probably can too, where I go, wow, I've seen some tremendous growth there. I used to be terrible at gossiping and slandering, just being honest. I, I'm not going to say I'm like completely removed from that, but I think I'm pretty close, and it has nothing to do with willpower. It's because I now see people as God sees them, and I didn't see them as God saw them before. I couldn't do that on my own. I can't muster that up. You don't know me. That's only because of the grace of God who's at work in my life because of the Holy Spirit of God. There's other places in my life, though, where I go, come on already. Why is this taking so long? Why am I still struggling in this area or that area? And if you're anything like me, you know, we're just talking about how do I know that I know that I know. Right now, some of you are probably sitting here going, I don't know that I know that I know that I know. I'm really scared about this because I don't see more changes in my life, or I've not experienced this inner sense of God's presence more. Friends, I just want to say to you, that's normal. That's normal. Who of us in this room have not been frustrated by our lack of growth in Christ? One of you has not been frustrated. (laughs) I'd like to meet you afterwards. In fact, why don't you come on up and preach? (laughs) Because, no, I think you didn't understand the question. Who of us has not been frustrated of our lack I mean, we just sometimes go like, oh, why did I do that again? And then we start to wonder, am I really sealed? 
I just heard Steve say that I'll be sealed if I see these external. Well, we get the answer in verse 14. Let's read it out loud together in our notes. It says, The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The reason we struggle, friends, the reason we struggle with that lie that we can lose our standing in Christ is because if you're following on your notes as Christians, we are living in the already but not yet. How's that for clear? We're living in the already, but not yet. What am I talking about? Well, look at what it says here. It says the Holy Spirit is our deposit, guaranteeing what? Say it. Our. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Were you here last week? Jeff just preached on the fact that I've been redeemed. So what is this? I'm waiting for my redemption? Is this a contradiction in Scripture? I mean, a contradiction like three verses later? What's going on? I mean, I was told I'm redeemed. I left here last week. Assured of my new identity of Christ that I am redeemed. I have been bought back. So what am I waiting for? Friends, I want to do a little bit of teaching right now. I think could be helpful for all of us, especially for you like me who struggle with this lie that I can lose my standing in Christ here. So we're talking about redemption. And in Ephesians 1, 7, it says we have been redeemed, and now it says we're waiting for our redemption. What's this talking about? Well, it's talking about the already but not yet of the Christian life. And what I mean by that is last week in Ephesians 1-7, we talked about the truth that I have been redeemed. What have I been redeemed from if I'm in Christ? I've been redeemed from my sin nature or more specifically from the penalty of sin. I have been set free from the penalty of sin in my life. I deserve God's wrath. Instead, I got God's grace. Thanks be to God. I have been redeemed. And yet, there's this mystery Scripture speaks about, about the fact that we are also being redeemed. Like right now, in my life, you, me, if we're in Christ, we are being redeemed. This was our justification the moment we were declared not guilty. This is often referred to as our sanctification. We are being redeemed from what? From the power of sin. We all know sin still exists. I was redeemed from the penalty, but sin still exists. And I can still choose to sin. So part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to redeem me in the present, to sanctify me from that power of sin. And yet we're also told there's a final day, the one we're reading about right now here, that we will be redeemed. That is called our glorification. What will we be redeemed from? We will be redeemed from the presence of sin. It's up on the screen too, I think, if you can't see it. Thanks be to God. We are his redeemed. We have been. We are be. Wait. We are being. We are be. And we will be. This, to me, at least, explains why I feel so much tension in my life as a Christian. I've been given the deposit, it says, of something so much greater, and yet I still feel tension. I still get frustrated with my lack of, of growth, right? All of us have experienced this. Why do I still struggle with the same sins, the same thoughts, the same habits? Why am I still struggling? Because we are being redeemed. We are on the process of redemption. Yeah, I see growth. But according to verse 14, what we have right now, friends, is just a deposit of something that much 
much greater that awaits for us. The Greek word that is translated as deposit there I think is really unfortunate because when I think of deposit, what do you think of? You think of renting an apartment, right? And you lay down in a deposit and if you keep the apartment in good shape, you get your deposit back. That's not at all what this word actually means. If you're falling on your notes, it really means the spirit is a down payment. Very different concept, right? A down payment guaranteeing our inheritance, so just think of it this way. If I wanted to buy a plot of land from you and you said this is, is going to cost $10,000, I might say to you, okay, I'm going to agree with you. I will pay you $1,000 right now as a down payment. We call this earnest money, right? But it's a guarantee that the rest of it is coming. The idea is the same here. Not only is the Holy Spirit our seal, he is our down payment, down payment guaranteeing something even greater is coming. We will be redeemed from the presence of sin once and for all. Amen and amen. I love how Kent Hughes explains this. I put this up on the screen so you can follow along. He says, imagine the sublimest, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit we have ever had and then realize they are only a foretaste, the tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven. Remember that time when in worship you were smitten with awe. Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading, then leading, then were wonderfully used. Think of all this and then multiply it a millionfold. Here on earth we've experienced the first dollar of one million celestial dollars, the earnest. Someday, in every aspect and dimension of our being, we will be glorified. What I think of is I just think, someday, I'm going to be everything I ought to be. One day, in Christ, I am going to be made everything I ought to be. The tension, the frustrations, the failures, those will all be gone. That is the not yet of the Christian life. But right now, we live in the already. We have been given a down payment. We have been given a down payment, and what a down payment it is. We have been sealed by God's very spirit. As we close, let me ask a question we often do. So what? I mean, who really cares? What does this mean for me? How does knowing that I've been sealed in the spirit, how does knowing that this sealing is a down payment for something much greater that awaits for me, how does that affect my life today? As I prayed about this this week and I thought over this, I, I think there's really two ways it can affect us, at least, if we let it. The first way, if you're falling on your notes, is that in Christ, I can be confident of my standing before God. Listen, I'll never forget meeting with this 100-year-old lady who just struggled with this lie, right? I can lose my standing in Christ. Listen, if you've been sealed by the Spirit, you are God's treasured possession and he will never let you go you belong to him we can leave these doors confidence as we see those internal and external changes in our lives we can be confident that i am sealed but there's a second application to this message and i struggle with how to put it but i put it this way in christ i should seek to live this day for that day in christ i should seek to live this day the tension, the frustrations, all those things for this day. Because I'm told here in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee 
of what is to come. For a Christian, that means we don't live our lives for this world any longer, do we? I mean, I just want you to imagine something. Let's, let's assume that you know for certain that someone in your family was going to leave you a trillion dollars. Like it was guaranteed. Would it change the way you lived your life right now? Of course it would. Would you care about going on that vacation that it might be a little tight on the butt? No. You wouldn't be worried about your children's education. It would absolutely change the way you live right here and right now, right? To know I've got a trillion dollars coming. Well, that's what we're told. For those who are in Christ, we've got a trillion dollars coming and more. So we live today, not for today. We live today for that day. Now, what is that? actually look like? Well, we'll get to that a lot more starting in chapter four. What does it mean to live today for that day? But I guess I just sum it up with the same verse we already read up on your notes there. I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live as one who has been, is being, and will be redeemed. Let's pray. Lord, we quiet ourselves before you now. To take this in. There's a lot of information God, I know just because of what we read right now that uh, the Spirit is at work in this place. And so as we just pause now, as we quiet our hearts, I'll just ask you to consider some questions. What does God want you to hear today, friend? Maybe it's not even anything I said. What does he want you to know? What does he want you to see about yourself? About the way you're living? Does he want to encourage you? Does he want to challenge you? Does he need to convict you? It's the Holy Spirit's job in our lives as a believer, so we have to, at times, quiet ourselves and just listen. So let's do that right now. Let's listen to what all of this even means for us today.
Oh God, you are our God and we will ever praise you. You are our portion. You are our wealth. You are our treasure. Who are we that you would look down upon us and that you would seal us in your spirit? That you would say, you belong to me. You are my possession. And that will never change. Who are we that we have been given a guaranteed inheritance? That the down payment is so amazing in and of itself, but so much more waits for us. We look forward to that day, to the redemption of our bodies. When the presence of sin will no longer plague us. But until that day, we want to be people who live this day knowing we are sealed and knowing that a greater day is coming. So we live our lives worthy of the calling you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.